Tonight is a, a shir. I want to continue with the whole um, the concept of uh, of uh, Pesach and uh, the, the spheres which we are obviously counting, which leads up to Shavuos. And I mentioned that it's really one period of time, even though they look like separate holidays, but really they're connected. Uh, you see. <clears throat> And in many ways, that's why we say, you know, the first day, the second day, third day, because what it really is, we're counting days from Pesach, right, all the way to Shavuos, because there is a continuity here, uh, which I'm going to speak about. I spoke a little about it, you know, last week, but again, you know, but before I get into that, I just want to mention that today there was really terrible news that Rabbi Zachariah Wallerstein was Nifta. And that's tremendous loss for, you know, the this type of work, you know, especially when you talk about the darkness that is in this world is unprecedented in many ways. You know, the, the, the amount of depravity and, uh, and corruption and evil of this world is, 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 is in many ways outstanding. So you really need people that are gifted in being able to restore or help people, you know, come back or stay with Judaism, you know. In other words, you need people that can be mechazek, strengthen, reinforce, and mulen bitochen, faith in God or belief in God, I should say, and trust in God. And Rebbe Wallerstein was one of those gifted people. So a loss of a person like him uh, really is in many ways uh, a tremendous blow to this type of endeavor, which is so important today. You know, the only way I can really, in, in a certain way, I mean, we don't really know why anybody dies, or certainly why they die in that, in that time. The one thing is clear, at least it's clear to me, is that for the last two years, we have lost a tremendous amount of people who are righteous, spiritual, or really, uh, you know, gifted. Tremendous Tamidi Chachomem, we've lost Rebbes. I mean, the list of people that we've lost would fill sheets of paper. You see, I'm not even going into Abchan Kanievsky and so on, you know because he was the God Lador, and I gave a, a shir all about him. But um, there have been tremendous amount of deaths. And, and the question is, what's going on? Because these people who die, they're not replaceable, really. And the, what, what happens is that even if you try to replace them, you replace them with people who are inferior, you know, so there are inferior people who I think so that rise to fill their slot. But the truth is, in many ways, they are inferior. I mean, we have no choice. But this is really what's happening. You know, uh, you know, and I, there are people obviously who are really chosher people. Not everybody's inferior. But but there's a constant change of people who are replacing people who pass away, but they are not of the same stature. So somebody like, uh, you know, Rabbi uh, 
Zechariah, you know, Wallerstein, is difficult to replace because he was a very gifted speaker. He must have brought back thousands of people over the years uh, to Judaism, back to Judaism. You know, he spread the word of God throughout. But there, there, is, there is one way of understanding, and I mentioned this, that what happens is that at the end of time, you see, justice demands to be satisfied. And even if the Rebbe wants to bring the Mashiach, he has to satisfy justice by his own decree, you see. So the Sultan raises what's called his Kritrugim, his prosecutions, that he says, it's not fear, you know, these people don't deserve Mashiach or whatever, uh, and therefore, you know, we have a right to rule. So what's happening here? So the Bonsham says, you're right, and I therefore will compensate for this by satisfying justice, you know. And there are many methods that the Bonsham employs. One of them is called the death of tzaddikim or the death of righteous and spiritual people. Uh, we know this because, you know, it says by the, the Paraduma and Miriam, uh, the death of Miriam, and the, uh, the Chazal tell us, you know, that the Paraduma is next to the parish of Miriam to tell us that the death of a tzaddik is tremendous kapora. So I believe that what's happening is in order to satisfy justice and bring the Mashiach, many righteous people are going to die. You know, now they themselves, because they, in certain sense, are dying before their time. In other words, if not for that complaint by the Sultan, would they have died? Possibly not. But people are dying in order to serve a higher purpose, which is to find the end the rule, the reign of the Sultan, to finally end evil. So there are many people that are dying, that are chosen, you know, as a, as a compensation for the evil in order to satisfy justice. And that's why so many people have died. You see, it's not enough with COVID and a lot of the suffering, inflation or whatever that's going on today. There's a tremendous amount of suffering going on. But apparently that is not sufficient. So therefore the Rebbe has to utilize another method to add to the Kapora, to the atonement. And that is the death of tzaddikim and righteous people, you see. So this is what's happening. We are seeing many tzaddikim, many people of stature, Many people that are, you know, really in many ways at the forefront of bringing Jews back. And this is because the Jewish people need an atonement, a kapora. So I believe that's a very important reason why we are seeing such an extraordinary uh, disproportionate of people who are really righteous and really play a pivotal role in bringing back the Jewish people. It's all to satisfy justice. And remember, this is exactly what happened in Egypt. When Moshe Rabbeinu came to Paroi, there was the same complaint by the Sultan.
So God said, you're right, I have to satisfy justice before I bring the Mashiach, which is Moshe Rabbeinu. So therefore, all of a sudden, Paris said they're lazy, and therefore they have to gather straw. You see? Which enormously multiplied and intensified the, the suffering of the Jewish people. So in a certain sense, they were able to reduce many years of hardship into a very short amount of time uh, because of that gezerah, that decree of Pari. And once it was fulfilled, then the, then the Rebbein Shalom brought the Marcus that destroyed Egypt. I believe the same mechanism is happening, the same dynamics is happening today. In any case, um, certainly it's really very terrible. Uh, but in any case, uh, before I begin, I want to dedicate the Shia to the Elias Neshama of Rini Moko, which is uh, Regina Bas Yosef Ruven, that the Shia should be for her as an Elias Neshama. In any case, so this is what I, I, I believe in many ways is what's going on unfortunately. But all of this, ultimately, I just want to mention that those people who are serving the Jewish people by dying and therefore giving the Jewish people a tremendous atonement in Kapora, they will receive an incredible reward for that service. In a certain sense, that's the avoider that they're doing. So just like they receive tremendous reward uh, when they do the mitzvahs, Torah, right, and spread the Torah throughout, their death in order to help the Jews bring the Mashiach will allow them to become, to, to achieve infinitely greater heights in Olam Habo, even though, you know, they're not aware of it. But remember, God does not do anything without just compensation. So I believe they certainly will, all of them, will have tremendous amount of aliyah. Aliyah meaning uh, elevation in the, in, the, in, in the Messianic era, when they get up from the dead, and also in Ilum Haba. Anyway, at least hopefully that will provide some type of clarity. Now, <clears throat> what we've seen so far is a very important idea and that is the concept of removing the Zoyamo, this pollution or contamination that the Sutton has, which is mixed with this world. Now, if you recall from the previous three shura, but I think this is number four, uh, which is very important really to go through and understand, because they provide the foundation for this year. But in any case... Um, other Mauritian, because of his sin, fell into a lower world, which is a world of Asiya, this world, but it's a world of Asiya that is mixed with what's called the Zoyama. What is the Zoyama in many ways? Well, we don't really know because it's a spiritual process or a spiritual entity. But what we can understand is the following. Zoyama is some type of a force 
or some type of a, it's hard to say, but let's say residue of the Sutton. It's a projection that he has that he can interact with the physical world. And it's a mixture. So the physical world has this Zoyama. Now, you, you should be aware that there are physical laws which reflect this interaction or mixture with the physical world. What are they? Well, one, there's a, 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 a law of physics. I think it's the second law of thermodynamics. It's called the law of entropy. What that says is that all systems, if they start out at a high energy level, all of them diminish. That's the natural order of things. In other words, they get less automatically unless they are infused with new energy. Why is that? Because the goal from a high energy state to a low means what? means some type of diminishment, right, or deterioration. That law of entropy is there because of Zayama. Because if you think about it, what is the Sutton? The Sutton's major job is what's called destruction. He's a demolition expert. That's what he does. He destroys, you see. And what he tries to do, instead of an enhancing being, right, he diminishes being, deteriorates or decomposes being. So therefore, in the physical universe, there's an ultimate law called entropy, which is the second law of thermodynamics, which means that all energy states will always go negative, downwards. And that is the physical manifestation of the Zayama. Now, we really see that all living forms, no matter what they are, will ultimately decompose. They will all deteriorate. In other words, everything dies. It doesn't make a difference what you are, whether you be human, whether you be a one-celled animal, a an amoeba, and so on. You will deteriorate and ultimately cease to have life. That's also... Zoyama. That's the product of Zoyama in the physical universe. What's interesting, and scientists recognized and was discovered, the concept of telomeres. At the end of cells or chromosomes or whatever, the, at the end of them, they all have these things called a telomere. You know, it's like a shoelace that at the end of the shoelace, it has a plastic that holds together the shoelace. You see. Um, so what happens is every time a cell divides, that telomere at the end shortens. And finally, after 50 divisions, that, sh that, that uh, telomere, which is the cap on the, the uh, DNA or whatever, if it doesn't exist anymore, then that cell dies. That telomere is the physical or biological manifestation of the Zayama. In fact, it's interesting to note that before death came into the world, which is before the sin of Adam, he didn't have any telomeres because he was supposed to live forever. He was not in, in a world that was inhabited with Zayama 
There was no satanic mixture at all in the world that he inhabited. And therefore, he doesn't die, you see. But however, once he entered the world, physical world of Zoyama, then of course, decomposition takes place, and therefore everything dies. Plants, animals, insects, humans, it doesn't make a difference. So we see, therefore, that the manifestation of Zoyama in this physical world is either decomposition of all living entities, ultimately in death, or, right, or in the physical universe in terms of energy, the law of entropy. So therefore, that's really what Zoyama is. It's some type of a projection of the Sutton, right, that invades or is, uh, interacts uh, with the physical world. And since we are physical, our bodies are physical, even though we are nishama, right, which itself is an unbelievable miracle, how can you take a nishama, a soul, which is completely spiritual, and not only is it spiritual, but its material is divine, which I had mentioned previously, and somehow insert it into a physical body. It's just absolutely, uh, you see, incredible. But in any case, the body is one thing if the body is physical, but it's worse because the neshama is in a body that has zoyama, you see, that has this contamination or pollution or filth, you know, however you want to translate that. So clearly then the objective is is to remove the zoyamo. Now, how do you remove zoyamo? Well, there's something else, and it's part of the Torah. <clears throat> and most people really have no idea what it is. There's a concept called tumo. Tumo means impurity of some sort, you see. And there's an entire section of shas which is devoted to the laws of tumo. Tumor, this type of impurity, is some type of a spiritual entity that can enter or reside in a body. All kinds of laws and the study of Taharas, which is a section that is given over, right? That section is all about Tumor. What are the laws that govern the flow of this spiritual entity called Tumor? And how does it reside in physical objects, you see? So there are a tremendous amount of laws about this. The question is, what in the world is this? What is Toma, really? You see, you have a whole seder of Shas, section of Shas that deals with Toma, you see. What Toma really is, it's very interesting, it's called surface Zoyama. You see, Zoyama invades, pervades the physical body. That's what Zoyama really is. But it cannot be removed, you see. The only way to remove it is if a person dies, is then buried, and his body decomposes. You see, so there's no physical body really, so therefore the Zoyama leaves it. And that's the whole concept of Tchiasamesim, of resurrection of the dead, you see. Because the problem is 
that you cannot remove Zoyamor. If you recall, I said the concept of Zikuch, which is to remove the impurity, or to dematerialize matter, you see? So what, what that means is that the body has to remove its Zoyamor, and then it can be purified, right, dematerialized, with all the mitzvahs that it did. But mitzvahs cannot remove Zoyamor. It cannot purify Zoyamor. The body has to remove the Zoyamor, right? And then the mitzvahs, which become activated, which the person did in his life, can remove, right, the physicality. That's called zikuch, you see? But it can't remove the Zoyamor. Therefore, the Zoyamor has to be removed in another process, right? And that process is death. That's why Odom had to die. Because he had to remove the Zoyama in order to get to a purely physical body. And then what would change the body from physical to spiritual, right, would be the mitzvahs, the commandments that he did. But the question is, wait a minute. How do you remove the Zoyama? Because the mitzvahs that he did cannot remove Zoyama. So therefore, it was decreed that he die, the body decomposes, and therefore the Zoyama leaves once the Zoyama leaves, then the body is resurrected. That's called Chesamesim, right? And the body then is only physical. Ah, if it's only physical, then when the mitzvahs become activated, without getting into the whole process, then the body turns into a spiritual entity, which I mentioned, like the Malachim. So therefore, death is the removal mechanism of the Zoyama where the mitzvahs can now perform zikuch, right, which is to refine or to remove that zayamah, you see. So therefore, that's the only way to do it. But tumah is interesting. Tumah is zayamah on the surface of the physical, you see. In other words, you can't remove zayamah unless a person dies, but you can remove what's called the surface of the body, which can have Tumor. But the source of the Tumor is really the Zoyamor. But what's interesting is that the Tumor itself, which is, resides in the body, uh, which is on the surface, can be removed by a mikveh. There are different removal techniques. You see? So what happens is if a person goes to the mikveh, or if he engages in other ways, for instance, the paraduma, whatever, then the surface Zoyamor, which is Tumor, right, is removed, which is very interesting. That's how it, uh, that's the concept. So therefore, Tumor exists because of Zoyamor. But what the Rosham doesn't want is in order for you to interact, right, with Kedusha, holy things. For instance, you cannot walk into the base of Mikdash or eat the Korbonus, the sacrifices, the offerings of the base of Mikdash. Why? Because you are Tomei. And you will interact with the Kedusha, the holy objects, and make them Tomei. That is a t- terrible sin. You know, it's, in fact, it's kind of chorus, and so on. So therefore, you have to remove the Zoyamah on the surface, which is called Tumah. You see? So the Bonsham, therefore, allowed you, because he doesn't want you to interact with the Beis Hamidosh or its offerings, with Zoyamah residing in you, 
or I should say, Tuma residing in you. So Zoyama, which is part and parcel of the physical, that's okay. That doesn't interact with the Kedusha. But the Zoyama on the surface, which is Tuma, that does interact with the base Hamikdash, and therefore it has to be removed. So one of the ways of removal is really very interesting. With Bansham decreed that if there is water, rainwater, right, of a measure of 40 saw, that's a measure, a quantity of water, if you go into that 40 saw, right, then the tumor cannot follow you. It's almost as if as you go down into the water, which is the mikveh, right, the tumor rises. And finally, when you are completely immersed, the tumor now is excluded from the body. That's how a mikveh works. Tumor cannot reside in a mikveh. So as you go down, the tumor goes up or outside of the mikveh. And finally, when you completely immerse, the tumor leaves. And you get up. And you are now pure of the tumor. Of course, there are rules and ideas and regulations and so on. But that's the basic dynamics of a mikveh. But in any case, that's what tumor is. You see? Now, what is interesting, therefore, is that tumor has certain stages of removal. You see? If a person becomes Tomei, let's the person touches a dead body, then he will become Tomei. Uh, now, there is a period of time that he cannot remove the Tumor, no matter what he does. A Paraduma or Mikveh will not work. See? So that Tumor is ensconced in the physical body. It's not removable. Then after seven days, after certain procedures, then the tumor becomes removable, you see. So that's a second stage. But in order to remove it, you have to apply, let's say, a mikveh. Or in the case of somebody who touches a dead body, you have to apply the paraduma, which is the red heifer, without going into the whole ceremony. So that's a third stage, right? And then once you apply that, then the person is called Tor. Tahara is nothing more than the absence of Tumah, you see? So therefore, the Tumah is removed. The problem, of course, is the person can reinfect himself with Tumah because there's Tumah all around the physical world. Well, what's interesting is when the Jews removed the Zoyamah, and this is the incredible aspect of Pesach, is that the Zoyama was removed, not just Tuma, but the Zoyama itself was removed from the physical body, you see. So it's the same stages. So first they had the Zoyama, can't remove it, you see. But then after all the suffering, the Zoyama became removable, you see, just like Tuma, that stage. And then in the ninth Makkah of Chushech, where it says, And to all the Jewish people, there was light in their dwelling. That's a tremendous illusion, right? For the fact that the Zoyma, for the first time in history, became removable. 
just like its counterpart, surface tumor, can be become removable. But you have to remove it, you see. So that entered the next stage, right? So the Jews left Egypt with Zoyamah in their physical body that was actually removable. We're not talking here about Tumor. We're talking here about Zoyamah, which is irremovable. And the only way you can get rid of it is you die. But because the Jews had made it removable because of their suffering and so on, it now became removable. And therefore, 49 days, which is astounding, there are 49 levels of Zoyamah. And each day of the Sphira is a removal of one level of the Zoyamah, not merely the Tumor, which is an incredible concept. It never happened before in history, you see, that it actually became removable and was removed. So the Jews at Har Sinai actually had bodies in which the Zoyamah was extricated, was externalized from their body. And the Gemara says this, that the Jews by Martin Torah at Sinai, they were like Odom or Rishim before the sin. It says that. It's a Gemara. It's not a Zoya. It's a Gemara. What does that mean? That means the Zoyamah, which they had, now actually became removable, or was removed, I should say. So really, when you think about it, they were not normal. We don't know what they were. And to show that they were not normal, they were extraordinary, because they had no Zoyamah. You know, if a person has no Zoyamah, we don't even know what that looks like. I'll give you an example. After seven days, there was Kriyas Yamsuf, right? And, and the Torah tells us, or the Medrash, whatever, the Chazal, that at Kriyas Yamsuf, a maidservant was able to understand and comprehend divine secrets of Kabbalah that even Yecheskel Hanovi did not know. So the question is, what is that supposed to mean? What'd she do? She didn't go to yeshiva, you know? And when I talk, we're talking about a maidservant, when I even talk about the menfolk and the, or everybody else. And the answer is because if you take Zoyamah and remove it from the physical body, then your ability to access the divine light, the divine knowledge, which is called the Orishim, becomes possible, you see. We don't even know what that means or how we're affected by the Zoyamah, you see. And the Torah refers to it in an interesting way where it says, Umol Hashem Levavchem, God will circumcise the heart, right? What does that mean? That means He will remove the Zoyamah, you see. In fact, the concept of circumcision is to remove the physical representation of Zoyamah. That's really what you remove by a bris. That concept of the Olo, or foreskin, is the physical representation of the Zoyamah. In fact, Odomarishan did not have that Olo at all. And when he did the sin, he actually grew an Olo, and the Olo really represents that foreskin, that represents the Zoyamah, you see. So Odomarishan, he created 
you know, he was responsible for the creation of the Zoyamo. So that's what it means, that God will circumcise the heart. He will remove the Zoyamo. We don't even know what we're going to look like. But whatever it is, it's going to be a stature that we cannot even believe. The ability to access divinity and divine information will be absolutely incredible. You see, so, and the, the, then at, at the Yamsuf, which was seven days, they had removed one-seventh of the Zoyamo. Could you imagine what it is if we remove 49 pieces or parts of the Zoyama, which is what they removed at Har Sinai? Now, the reason why there are 49, right, is because the Sutton uh, can take the Nitzitzi Kedusha from only seven spheres. We know there are ten, you see? Ten spheres. And each of these ten are further subdivided into ten, you see? So if you add them all up, and those are the main ones, the main energy of the divine source. So if you multiply ten times ten, that's one hundred. So there are one hundred principal uh, spheres that provide the energy of the entire creation. Now, what's important to know is that the first three we have no concept of, and that's Kesser, Chochman, Bina, you see, and they really represent the foundation of the lower seven, which is Chesed, Gevura, Ferris, Netzachod, Yisoyed, and Malchus, you see. Those first three are called the Gimel Rishonis, the first three, and they are the source of divine energy for the lower seven. In fact, the visibility or the ability to experience those first three will only happen, right, in Oilam Habo. But the lower seven, which are energized by the upper three, their energy creates the entire universe, actually, that there are seven, and that's why there are seven days of creation. You see, each day mirrored one sphere. <clears throat> but since these seven spheres are the energy source, the intermediary energy source of the entire physical world, you see, so the Satan can only take the Kedusha, the sparks of holiness, what's called Yoinek, only from these seven. But these seven are really part of the seven spheres because he can only take seven, the lower seven. So since there are ten spheres, he can only take seven of them, of the original, and then even of these seven, he can only take seven, because they are the energy source of the physical world. comes out that he could take seven times seven, which is 49. There you have it. So he can take the energy of 49 spheres, you see, and that energy allows him, right, to project the Zoyama into the creation. And therefore, what the Jews did, right, is they took out or they removed the Zoyama, the 49 levels of Zoyama. See, I hope I've explained it sufficiently. And this really is the days of Sphira. That's really what we're counting. And if you take a look at the Siddur, it says to remove the Zoyama. It actually says that in the Tefillah that we say, right, 
by these spheres, right, to remove the Zoyamo. And that's exactly what we do, which I'll get to, and that's what the Jews did. So imagine the Jewish people are now standing at Har Sinai, right, with the Zoyamo of the Sultan externalized. Because what they have done is remove the sparks of holiness, right, from the Sultan and brought it back into the side of Kedusha. And that's what the Makkas were. In other words, the spheres became, in a certain sense, represented, physicalized, and that destroyed Egypt. So it was the very ten spheres, really, that destroyed Egypt, as I had mentioned previously. So this is what's going on, you see. So we now have an understanding of Zayama, we understand the concept of a mikveh, of Tomah, why there are 49 levels of Zoyamah, and now that the Jews are now standing at Har Sinai, you see, uh, which is amazing, because the next thing that they have to do is what? The next thing the Jews have to do is destroy the Sultan, kill him. You see, it's funny, because... In, 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 in the physical world, even if you go to the mikveh and you remove the tumor, it can always come back in your body. You see, if you touch or whatever, carry certain things, items, right? So therefore, um, we can always reinfect ourselves. So therefore, if the, what the Jews did at Sinai was they externalized the actual Zoyamor, which means they externalized the Sultan himself, you see. That means he was outside the body, which would have meant that the laws that manifest itself from the Zoyama, which is entropy, right, and telomeres, whatever, the Jews were, in a certain sense, immortal at that point in time, you see. <clears throat> in any case, therefore, what they would have to do is destroy the Sultan. So what the Rav did is he gave him one last test, which is interesting. If you take Adam Harishan, for instance, you'll find that he was an awesome being. He wasn't even like us. He had no Zoyama, right? He was an awesome being. All he had to do was that one mitzvah not to eat from that tree, right? <clears throat> and he would have immediately brought down the light of the spheres, the energy of the spheres, and he would have been Mashiach, right? But before he had that, he would have one more test. And that test was a test, it's almost like a philosophical test, right? He knew that God was Yichud Shlitosoy. He knew that God was the greatest power source of all. He saw that. He was placed into a world that was fully developed, because he was created on the sixth day. So he knew God was what's called Yichud Shlitosoy, that he's the ultimate, right, ruler and power of everything. But he, what he was denied him, the insight, that God not only is the ultimate power, koyach of everything, but God is the only thing that exists. That's called Yichud Mitziusoy, that God is the only thing that exists, that's classic Eilid Mavadoy. So he was denied that insight so he could be tested. Oh, you see. And what the Sultan did, knowing this, 
is he offered him a certain idea. He said to him, and Rashi brings this down, he said, right, to Chava, you can be his God. What does that mean? He said that, wait a minute, you're right. God is an unbelievable power source. But God is not the only being. In fact, God, his whole power comes from that tree. That's the real power source. So what he was saying, the Sultan, the Chava, she pressed off the argument to Adam, is that there's another power source. That's the tree, which is the Eitz HaChayim, and that's why God doesn't want you to eat it. Because if you eat that tree, you will be like God. And he says that to Chava, you will be like God. You see, so what he's saying is that, you're right, he is an incredible powerful being but there's something more powerful than him and that is the tree if you eat from that then you become God that's exactly what he offered to Adam Mauritian you see now Chava fell for that whatever and then Adam she repeated it to Adam and he fell for that too so what Adam failed to realize is that Yichud Mithi Usoy that God is the only thing that exists and that tree is a setup. It's an illusion that there's another power source superior to God. This was the problem. Why did God give him that test? It's almost like a, a test in philosophy. Because had he withstood the test, then he would have experienced Yichud Mitzi You see, he would actually have experienced that God is the only thing that exists. Because that's really what we experience in Olim Habo, you see. So God said, if he's going to experience that, then that has to be his test. So when you think about it, somebody who's at the end of time is going to get a test of philosophy. You see? And that's what happened to Adam Arishim. Therefore, the Jews got the same test. Since they had what's called extricated the Sultan and his Zoyamah, right? Uh, and by the way, that also meant the collapse of the four levels of evil, right? They also had to be tested, because they were like Odom before the Chet. So they needed a test, just like Odom, right? Is God Yichud Mitziusoy? They knew he was all-powerful, because they witnessed the ten plagues. They witnessed the Kriyas Yamsuf, which is probably the greatest miracle that ever happened. If you look at the Chazal, what happened in that miracle was much more than just the splitting of the Red Sea. It divided into 12 parts. I don't want to go into the whole thing, but it was just beyond belief what that miracle was. So now they had to believe that what? That not only is God the greatest power source, He's the only thing. Oh, so the Satan realizing, right, that this is the last test, because if they pass this test, then He dies. And He knew that. Because the Sat is now out of the physical body. And if they pass this test, he dies. So he was desperate, you see. Now the test was what? Can, be, can God be represented by a physical entity? Namely, uh, a, 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 some type of a, uh, a deity, some type of an idol. Now, did the Jews believe that this idol was God? No. Doesn't even make sense. But they did feel that God can be represented by an idol. 
But we know that's absurd. That's why there is no idol. There is no physical representation whatsoever in any way in a shul or even in the base of Mikdash. There's no image of God. Nothing can represent them. So because they allowed, actually it was the era of Rav that did that, because they allowed the era of Rav to build this idol, which is the golden calf, therefore the Jews failed the test, right? And as a result of that, if they failed the test, then they could not be privy to Yichud Metziusoy, to experiencing the oneness of God, or the exclusivity of God, you see? They had the same test as Odom Harishim. And therefore, automatically, what happened was, the Sultan was able to be unique. He was able to recapture a great deal of the sparks that he had given away. Bad news, you see. Because that's what God wanted, you see. So therefore, he was, able to, he was able to recapture, which is very, very important, you see. And because of that, God had to make major, major decisions because now the Zoyamor re-entered creation, you see. The Jewish body, so to speak, now became again part of the world of the Zoyamor, you see. Because of the sin of the golden calf, since they failed to realize Yichud Mitzusai, that there is no other power, and God cannot have any intermediaries. How can a being, right, uh, that is the only thing that exists, have an intermediary? It's absurd, you see. So that was a rejection of the concept of Enoid Mavadoi, and as a result of that, they reintroduced the Zayama into creation. So uh, this is a very important idea of what happened. And besides that, there are other things. <clears throat> you see, the problem was, and I'll, I will end with this, the problem is this, is that the Jews have to remove the Zoyamah and kill the Sultan, which they almost did. But like I say, the Sultan was successful in fooling the Jews. But in any case, as a result of that, what happened? Therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu, who is the Mashiach ben Yosef, that's really who he was, and he would have been Mashiach ben Yosef had they not done the sin of the golden calf, then he could no longer be Mashiach ben Yosef. You see, in fact, God says to him, Lech raid, go down. Go down, what does a go down mean? It means not just go down from the mountain, but go down from your stature, you cannot be Mashiach anymore because they have reintroduced the Zoyamah. In fact, what's important to know is that not only have they reduced the Zoyamah, you see, but they can no longer be privy to that ore which they would have gotten, that ore that incredible light, you see. In fact, what's interesting is because they had removed the Zoyamah slowly, Therefore, as a result of that, as time went on, you see, in fact, that's what it means. Moshe Rabbeinu took out what's called Vayikach Moshe as Atzmois Yosef. He took out the bones of Yosef. Because, of course, Yosef promised 
that they have to take him out of Egypt. So he took out the bones. But if you want, you could read, instead of reading Vayikach Moshe is Yatzmoish Yosef, the bones of Yosef, you could read Vayikach Moshe and Moshe took out Atzmus Yosef, the essence of Yosef. You see, because the light of the Mashiach was trapped in Egypt. And once the, the people had restored the Nitzitzis, the sparks to the, uh, to the spheres, then they could take out what the sparks would represent, which is the Messianic light. And that's the light of Yosef HaTzadik, who was the foundation, the Shema of Mashiach ben Yosef. So they took it out. And therefore, when they restored the Zoyama, right, what was the thing that they built, the idol? was a calf. Why a calf? Because the symbol of Yosef is an ox, a shore, which is basically a calf. So therefore the, the shape of the idol that they made is the symbol of Yosef, right? And they worship it as part of what? As an intermediary, which is an idol and so on, right? And as a result of that, that calf represents that the light of the Mashiach ben Yosef is now back in the hands of the Satan. That's why that was a calf, or a, 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 a calf. Because that represented that the Messianic light of the calf, which is Mashiach ben Yosef, right, is now being used as an idol, so to speak. So it's back in the hands of the Satan. And that is why the eagle was a calf. You see? Because that's exactly what they had undone. They took the light of Yosef at Tzadik, which is the messianic light, Atmos Yosef, right? And they had restored back into what's called the hands, the, the domain of the Sutton. You see? And that's why it was a calf. In any case, so far we see an incredible saga of what really is going on. You know, uh, this saga of Pesach and the Spheres and Torah, which we'll, I'll talk about next week more, is a cosmic cataclysm, catastrophe, because it was the first time the Jews had removed the, the, the Zoyamah and the Satan was about to die and they had brought him back, the Zoyama back into creation, and as a result of that, everything changed. And I will continue the saga next week. Any questions? Yes. Um, just explain to me again, I missed it. The, the calf was a symbol of the messianic light being sent, uh, been taken away from Yosef and given it back to the Satan. But why the Correct. calf? Why, why, why the calf? What does the calf have he's, to do? He's an ox. Oh, because the ox? symbol, because the symbol on the Merkova, the divine chariot, is an ox. One of them is an ox. Right? There's a face, the, the chariot of God, called the divine chariot, has four wheels. One of them is Odom, a man, the face of a man, which, by the way, is the face of Yaakov Avinu. The second is an ox, which is the symbol for Mashiach ben Yosef. 
The third is a lion, which is a symbol of Mashiach ben David. And the fourth is an eagle, which I think I once spoke about what that represents. But in any case, the ox is the symbol of Joseph. In fact, that's what it says at the end of the Torah, Bechor Shoiroi Hodeloi, right? The firstborn of his ox, beauty it is, and that is the broch that he's given to the tribe of Yosef, right? So therefore, that calf, which they had succeeded, ox, which they had succeeded, so to speak, Atzmus Yosef, the essence of Yosef, in taking out of Egypt, that's why Moshe was able to take it out, was now restored to the Sultan himself. You see? So he now had the Orishim in what is called the Klippa, back into the domain of the Sultan. But that's what it is. The ox is a symbol of Yosef. What is the purpose of the divine chariot? Like, what is it exactly? And why do we need it? What do we, why do we know? About, why does God have it? Well, the divine chariot, basically, not really getting into it, but basically, it's really very simple. What is a chariot? We, we don't have chariots anymore, right? But what is a chariot? It's a vehicle. It's a vehicle meant to bring a person from point A to point B, correct? That's what a chariot is. It's a vehicle of old, right? That's what they used to have. Uh, so God uses the divine chariot as the symbol of Kabbalah. Why? Because the essence of the Jew is to bring God from point A to point B. God is outside the universe, and God wants to re-enter the universe, right? Uh, so the way he re-enters is the entire structure that interfaces between God and the physical universe. And that's really what the study of Kabbalah is. You see, Kabbalah is the study of the total mechanism of how God outside the universe interfaces with the physical universe, right? That's what it is. The study of that, it's a study of the spheres, partsufim, whatever. So the chariot is the symbol of that study. The chariot is the symbol of a vehicle. And that vehicle is the actual mechanism that brings God back. That's what a chariot is. It's a vehicle of transport. And that's the representation of Kabbalah, right? Which is really the interface between God and the physical world. You know, it's like, you know, in a certain sense, I hate to use this comparison, but for instance, uh, plumbing, right? You need to bring the water from the reservoir, right? All the way to your faucet. So there's an entire mechanism, pipes, right? That brings it and pumps and pipes and so on. Well, in, in that analogy, the mechanism to bring God into the universe, which means the chef of the Ein Soif, means the, the, the divine energy and so on, you want to bring it from point A, which is beyond the universe, or beyond all the entire uh, creation, you want to bring it into the creation, right? And as a result of that, change the very nature of the physical world. That's basically what it is. But it has four wheels, which means that it rides ultimately on four points or four concepts. 
One is Adam. Man is the one who does it. Right? Man is the one who brings God back into the world. Therefore, his face is a wheel. And that really is Yaakov Avinu. You see? The second face is Mashiach ben Yosef. Because he's the one who removes the Zoyamo. The third face is, a, uh, is the uh, a lion that represents Mashiach ben David. And that's the world without Zoyamo. Right? He's the force that removes the Zoyamo and also and brings the whole world to a physical level. Just like all the Marishim before the sin. You see? And the Mashiach is the last thing that we have to do. We don't have to do any Tikkun beyond Mashiach ben David. When this world ends in the year 6000, which is the English year 2240, that's the end of the Tikkun. We do not have to do anything anymore. You see, so that third world signifies the termination of the whole Tikkun process. Because after that, from the year 2240, which is the year 6000, God does everything from the 6th to the 7th to the 8th to the 9,000, that's in God's domain, not us. And the last um, uh, aspect of the vehicle, wheel, so to speak, is an eagle. And the eagle represents God. Because without God, we could never have done the Tikkun. He has to have input also. And that's Tanogas HaYichud. That is the mechanism which I will speak about in the future. That's the incredible actions of God that guarantees there will be a tikkun. You see, even if man in some way is failing, why is God described as an eagle? Because in Hazino, that's how he is described. As it says, as the eagle bears its young above it, because the eagle is the highest flying bird. So what it does, it puts its young on its back so there's nothing below it that can reach its young. You see? And the eagle, obviously, is the king of the birds, and so on. So the eagle represents God that has the Jewish people on his back, that nothing can really destroy the Jews. And that was the symbolism of the sneh, the burning bush, that even though it's, there's a tremendous fire that surrounds it, it's not consumed. In fact, the Torah says that. Because the Jews can never be consumed because they are the vehicle of Tikkun, you see? So that's really what the chariot symbolizes with those four wheels or conveyances. You see? So then, is the chariot the the main energy source and the the Svidot come from it? No, the, the, the well, the chariot is the symbolism, is the the structural symbolism of everything. That's why it represents the uh, the framework of Kabbalah. It's a vehicle, you see, that wants to transport God from one point to the other point, which is the destination. Because in the end, that's really the whole gist of this creation is God removed himself in the beginning, right? And he wants to come back. He wants to interact again 
with the Jewish people, and he also wants to interact with mankind. You see, whoever deserves it, and so on. And that's really the essence. That is the essential dynamic of the whole purpose of creation. God's return. Shechino, right, means the residence. Shochein means to reside. God wants to reside among man in however he does it. We don't know. And that's through Dvekas and so on. You see? And that's the essential purpose. And I should say, the essential destination, the essential dynamic, you see? The essential goal of the whole creation is to come back and interact and be part of man's existence for eternity. So then, how would you define the Shekhinah? Like, how, how do we define it in a way? I know it's God's presence, but it, uh, is it God? It's obviously it's not God himself, so what is it exactly? Like, how do we... Well, very simply, because it's really the whole Shia of who is God, but uh, very simply, there are different perceptions of that presence. The Shekhinah is the perception of God or how he is viewed when we are physical. But then his perception, right, at the level of soul is going to be different. You see? So he doesn't change. Our view of him changes. You see, based on the state of existence that we have at that moment. So Shechina is basically the view that we can have as created entities. And there are many levels of Shechina. It's not just one Shechina. Because like I say, it's just, well, which view do you have? You know? It's like you're looking at somebody, right, with a te- through a telescope. Now, you can look at somebody, a telescope that has a small lens. So you see them, but they're sort of like obscure, and they're very small. But the greater the lens, the greater is the ability, right, to observe, greater clarity, see? But the person doesn't change, or whatever you're looking at doesn't change. It's your view that changes based on the instrument you're using. So the Shechino really is the view, indicates the view that we have of God within a creation realm. You see? But to view God in terms of who he really is, which is ain't safe, impossible. But God has created a way that we can view an aspect of him, right, what, whatever, that through the medium of creation, he can be viewed in a certain way. You see? It just, you know, it's just that there's a certain lens that can view him. You know? There are much greater lenses. You see? If you are in the world of angels, then your view of the Shekhinah is almost infinitely greater. And if you are in the upper worlds, right, then your view of him is much greater. And finally you get to Ilam Habo, so your view of him is unbelievable. And what's interesting 
is that the view itself is infinite, which means that Oilam Habo is infinite, because Oilam Habo is really a place that every single day, let's use that as a unit of time, your view improves of God. You see? Now we cannot imagine what that means. How can God be viewed with an infinite amount of lenses? But that's what happens. You see? So Oilam Haba will afford us a view of the Shekhinah, because we are created entities, that actually goes on for infinity. It's unbelievable. You see? We, we cannot imagine what that means. But basically, it's a view of God. You see? And with that view, it's not just looking at Him within the context of the type of beings we are. There's infinite pleasure with that view which we do not understand. Uh, you see? So that's the essential experience in Oilam Habo. Uh, to have an infinite gradations of the view of God, <clears throat> thereby experiencing this unbelievable amount of pleasure. Look, these things are beyond comprehension. Look, we don't even understand what it means to remove the zoyama from the body. I mean, we all have zoyama in it, right? We get sick, get diseased, all this kind of stuff. We don't even know what it means to have no zoyama. They, the Jews, were the first ones to experience, besides the Adam, what it means to have no Zayama. You see, even though the Sultan still existed in their day, and unfortunately, they allowed him to re-enter by capturing uh, many of the sparks, recapturing, I should say. You see? So that's really what the Shrina is in a very uh, simple way. You see? So it is the presence of God, just, it depends on your view. You know, for instance, you know, you're looking at the galaxies, so you got the view of a binoculars, right? Then you got the view of a small telescope, then a larger, let's say, refracting telescope, a mirror telescope, and then you got the view of the Hubble telescope, and then the latest one which they just brought up is the James Webb. They say that's going to be phenomenal. So could you imagine looking at the universe with this unbelievable telescope called the James Webb Telescope? It's the same universe, same galaxy, but what a difference in view. Same idea with God in Ilm Habo. That's what the Shrina is. It's the ability to view him altogether at any degree, you see, based on your existential level. You see? I hope that's clear. Does our merits also correlate to our view? Yes. In fact, that's the main thing. <clears throat> Based on your merit, the greater the view. Yes. Because the view is the reward. But remember, I, I don't want to make it sound dry of you. You mean that? That's all we got to look forward to is to see God? No. Seeing God is experiencing God. And that's the greatest of all pleasures. <clears throat> because experiencing God means experiencing existence itself. Which has to be understood and described. We don't know what existence is in and of itself. 
We have existence, but we have no idea what it is, you see. And apparently that's the greatest of all pleasures. And this will happen not in the Messianic era, but in Ulam Habo, in the future world. You see. Okay. So you were discussing how the Satan, um, he recaptured uh, the sparks of holiness from the Jews when they sinned in the golden calf. Yes. So what uh, guarantees us that the Satan won't try to do that again when the Mashiach and Yosef come? Great question. And the answer is, Be'itoi. Because there is a deadline where God swears, because you're right, this can happen over and over again. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, okay, we, we ex- extricate him, and then all of a sudden he, he recaptures. Hey, come on, how many times can this go on? But there's what's called the Be'itoi in its time. There is a deadline that in some way God makes sure that it ends, you see. How he does it or what he does, we don't really know, you see. And, but, so in other words, the Jews were able to extricate, externalize the Satan in Egypt. But that wasn't the Itoi. That was what's called the Aveda. They actually had to work to do it, but it could always be restored. But there is a way where it can't be restored when the Jews will have done something, not only to extricate him, but to kill the guy. To kill him. So apparently that's what happens. It doesn't stop. And uh, we don't know the exact mechanism, but whatever it is, he dies. And obviously if he dies, the entire kingdom of evil collapses. And therefore it's over. So the Beito is basically in the the year... um 2030, when the, when, um... It would seem, it, it, let's hope it is, yes, it would seem so. Yeah, because when the Zoya says that the resurrection of the dead will be in 2030, uh, that can only happen if it's Beitoi, right? So there will come a time that we will actually succeed in destroying him, not merely externalizing him, but killing him. So obviously that's the end of the entire empire of evil, you see. And we all wait for that day. But that's really the, begin- the end of our process. Remember, that's our contribution to the Tikkun. Then from there, once he's destroyed, remember, there's no Zoyama, but there is Geshem. Then God takes over, you see, and it goes on and on. And that's what the Messianic era is. It is a world of physicality, not uh, tuma, not any type of def- defilement or uh, pollution or whatever. That's over. So our job of tikkun has ended. And like I say, we have no idea what that will be. I mean, in a certain way, think of that maidservant, that Omavriya at Kriya Samsov, when only one-seventh of the Zoyama was, was accomplished, Right? Could you imagine what she saw, right, and what she knew, and what she experienced? We have no idea. And that's only one-seventh of the Zoyamor out. Can you imagine what it is 
If all of it is out, we don't know. But whatever it's going to be, the uh, the experience, the joy, will be thousands of times greater. Remember one thing. The Messianic era is not only a time that brings relief, right, from evil, suffering, death, disease, hardship, right? It's not just relief, but God will introduce an era, you know, if you want to call it utopia, which is unmitigated joy. So we cannot even begin to understand what that world is. That's something to understand. It's not merely the cessation or termination of evil, and therefore all the subsequent, you know, phenomena that associated with it. It is a period of time where everything is absolutely phenomenal. You see, we don't even know what that means, and so on. That's the messianic era, because the tikkun will have been complete. It's interesting that God wants us to experience the physical world beyond the tikkun. It's not that people have to die and then all of a sudden wake up to an oilam haba. No, He wants us to experience oilam hazer in the greatest possible way. And then he will arrange where Oilam Hazer becomes, this world, becomes Oilam Habo. That's his job. Our job is to prepare Oilam Hazer for Oilam Habo. You see? But we will experience Oilam Hazer, this world, in a way which is incomprehensible. That's the good news. You see? Great. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. And what was that? Thank you, Rabbi. Yes. There's a lot to think about. A lot of lofty ideas to think about. You know, I'm trying to what's called describe this cosmic event called Pesach which is now what you begin to see, you see, and uh, that we will, I, I will continue, because there's, there's, there's more to talk about, the redemption itself, and and so on, you know, what really happens, uh, and so on, and, and also, well, you know, how, can we replicate the Jews, what the Jews did in Egypt? So I have to go through that also, what the mitzvahs are, chometz and matzah and all that, 